The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. This will be available as a podcast under the Lead Lag Live banner on all your favorite platforms. With all that said, my name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Spencer Jacob, editor at the Wall Street Journal, heard on the street column. Spencer, I'm, I'm super excited for this conversation. I spent a little bit of time listening to some of your prior talks. I think this will be really interesting for the audience. But before we get too deep into things, introduce yourself. Who are you? How'd you get interested in the financial journalism side of, uh, of the industry, and what are you doing at the Wall Street Journal? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I did not really know anything about journalism or financial journalism. When I got out of college, I was on my school paper because it was a girl I liked uh, on the school paper, and you know, I wound up going out with her for a year. But that was, you know, I, I didn't know about journalism as a job. I didn't know about finance as a job, for that matter. And I did a a master's program later at, at Columbia University in International Affairs. Met a kid who's now, you know, almost sixty-year-old kid. We're still friends. Who had been an investment banker, and I, I really had never been exposed to that. My parents were refugees; they didn't know about you know Wall Street, other than that's a place where you invest. And I asked him what that was, what it meant. He said it was a horrible thing, but then he told me how much money he had made out of uh, out of college at Bankers Trust. And it piqued my interest because money sounded interesting. And he said, I just needed to take all the finance coursework uh, you were allowed to do it then at Columbia Business School on top of my usual coursework. And I, I wound up liking it a lot, became an emerging market analyst, worked in finance for 10 years. And then I just got bored with it you know, and and felt that finance was very interesting, but I'd like to to be able to call up smart people and talk about it and and write about it and would accept a pay cut for doing that. So I've been a journalist for the last almost 20 years, the last 11 years at, at the Wall Street Journal, where I edit the Hurt on the Street column, which is the financial analysis and commentary part of the paper. Do you find that having the wearing the journalist hat is different than wearing the analyst hat? How, how, do the, how are the two similar and different? Well, it, there, there are definitely differences. You know, one is that, with, you know, with all, all respect to the, the analyst profession, I mean, you often will miss the forest with the trees as an analyst. You know, you're you're focused very specifically on you know maybe a, a dozen companies. You're tracking changes here, there. It's it's difficult. It's there's a career risk in changing your opinion too quickly, which is why you know you you'll see these analysts downgrade a stock you know after something horrible has happened or upgraded after it's had a big run because that's you know because analysts are just not very useful 
as stock pickers. Analysts are useful in terms of, you know, if you if they're good analysts and you read their their research and you have a lot of nuggets and details in there and they're good at explaining the business of the companies they're writing about, that's all fine. In terms of target prices and recommendations, those are, are demonstrably worse than useless. And a journalist, whether it's someone who does specifically what I do, where you're you're taking a view, or if it's someone who's a, a purely objective journalist who's who's pretty smart and knows what kind of questions to ask, I think can can be of much more service in terms of of you do you know doing your research into what you'd like to invest in or not invest in. Having said that, of course, journalists are, are not not doing the the deep dives into companies. I mean, even though heard on the street employs a, a, some former analysts and, and brokers and things like that, you know, we don't have a financial model. We're not doing that level of research. And as I hope you all know, you know, there's, there's also diminishing returns to, to doing a, a lot of research that, you know, that you, you've done 10 hours of research on a company that 11th hour of research is not going to, to yield much benefit often. You know, you should you should have found out the important stuff in the first two or three hours. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's that's absolutely valid. Do, do you get the sense that financial journalism is less apt to bias compared to traditional journalism outside of the realm of investing? That it's less emotional or less uh, uh, agenda driven? I suppose so. I mean, you can definitely you know you if you want to name outlets, whether it's cable channels or uh, or newspapers you know if you read them enough or or know them enough people will and depending on their their point of view they might say like no this the new york times calls it exactly like it is but then this other newspaper is i i feel is biased it really depends on what what you consider normal and what you consider you know good and rational and, and whatever but you know there is there is unconscious bias that that creeps into journalism and of course there's 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 an editorial slant I think that with the kind of honestly, there, there's value in, in in reading any of the sort of the leading newspapers, and then probably your local newspaper. You know, even if you think that it, it tilts to the left or tilts to the right, because it, journalists generally are in the United States, especially less so in other countries. You know, are really it's drilled into them that they should be objective. They might not achieve it, in your opinion, but you know, they're out there finding things out. That's that's the main role of journalism. You know, my, my part of the paper is a, a smaller part of the paper where we have scoops of insight. But generally, you know, journalists are out there finding out what happened, what this person said. They're looking for scoops of fact. They're looking out for things, you know, looking for things that haven't been reported. That's useful, period. There's no bias to to that. You know, if you want to filter it through how you, you know, you know, you you can not like the New York Times, but you you'll find lots and lots of of, of very useful revelations in the New York Times. You're doing yourself a disservice if you just for some ideological reason you're not reading one or another paper. Now, when we get to cable channels that sort of, you know, MSNBC and Fox News and whatever on the left and the right, respectively, you know, they 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 do a lot less news these days, right? They they discovered that this business model works a lot better. You know, you used to have people all over the world. Something was happening in Baghdad or in Moscow or in Paris, and you had a bureau there and. It was expensive to keep up those bureaus and send people around the world and have camera crews and stuff like that. And they figured out that a lot more people will watch your channel if you have people kind of ranting, you know, taking a, an ideological position. And even though those people are are often very well paid, it's way, way cheaper to have them, to have a handful of people like that who are sort of, you know, really more ideologues than uh, than journalists. 
And so that that's what it, on TV it's devolved into. But newspapers, thankfully, have not have not gone that way. Yeah, no, that, that that's a fair point. Now, I, I have to imagine the the last two three years have probably been the craziest from a financial journalism perspective. Talk through the audience how how odd it's been, perhaps maybe is the right word, to cover all the things that have gone on, not just post-COVID, but obviously the meme stock mania, which we'll talk about, and then the way things have played out this year. Has there ever been in your career, Spencer, anything even remotely close to the number of insane things that we've all seen in the last you know several years here? I guess, no, it's, it's crazy. I mean, with crypto and meme stocks and things like that, it's extremely interesting. And, you know, and then w- with COVID and, you know, this incredibly rapid panicky descent from an all-time high into a bear market, then the, the fastest recovery ever, I think that financial markets are weirder and more exciting than they've been in a long, long time. You know, I, I started out working in finance and I worked in emerging markets. And working in emerging markets, I mean, it's a little bit like like dog years, you know, like you everything's compressed. So, you know, whereas, you know, I'm I'm 53 years old, you know, someone my age who's worked throughout that time in Wall Street, you've seen, you know, two really big financial crises. You know, maybe you were brewing for a third, but you've seen two really big wipeouts in, in your career. You know, you weren't working yet for the crash of 87 and stuff like that. The 10 years that I worked in emerging markets research, you know, you saw five in different parts of the world. So, you know, there was always something just crazy happening, people being wiped out, bank runs and stuff like that. And, you know, that affected the people in those countries in in much more extreme ways than you're like your 401k losing half of its value. You know, it's like your your savings becoming worthless and stuff like that. So yeah, so I kind of became a not that I like to see bad things happen, but you know, I, I get very excited too, you know, when I see crazy stuff happening. And, you know, because it's it's amazing to to be writing the first draft of history as a journalist and trying to figure out what it all means and what's going on. So to that end, that, that's, I think, a good segue into your book, The Revolution That Wasn't, and everything that happened with GameStop. Now, I, I, I talked to a lot of individuals, financial advisors, and I'll often share my screen, and I'll show to whoever I'm talking to the charter GameStop, and I'll note that the spike in the price happens, or the Roaring Kitty and all this stuff, the week of, I think it was January 25th. And then within two to three weeks after that, ARC peaked. Within two to three weeks of that, uh, emerging markets peaked. (laughs) Within two to three weeks of that, small caps started going sideways, breadth started deteriorating. And I've often made the argument that the bear market really started February of 2021, because that's when the vast majority of things started rolling over, even though large cap S&P kept on pushing higher in what looked like a bull market. Walk us through, as it was unfolding from a financial journalism perspective, what you perceived as what was really happening when it came to the initial GameStop spike. And then just talk through sort of the the, the way that evolved over time relative to the broader market. Well, I think I think you're right. that, and I, And I don't think that it's a coincidence that it happened shortly before the peak and all those things. But, and we can get back to this, but I think cause and effect are a little bit different because my book isn't just about the crazy story about what happened with GameStop and all these, you know, traders organized on Reddit and these hedge funds getting wiped out or almost wiped out, which is a crazy story in itself. But I, I tell you know, how it happened, what the buildup to it was. And, and the buildup, you know, the crazier the, the, the buildup, the, you know, the 
the harder the the sell off and the you know the bigger the come up and so we're not done with it yet by the way i don't think that we've seen a, a true moment of capitulation maybe we have obviously there are people who've thrown in the towel who lost a lot of money individually or have kind of seen the light or have become much more conservative investors in the last uh, year and a half or so but i don't think that we've seen the the ultimate wipeout i think it's it's an unfolding process but so what did i see you know i mentioned before that you know journalists write the first draft of history and Unfortunately, the first draft is often a little rough. And when I, the whole thing was brought to my attention. I have three sons. My eldest boy is now out of college. He was senior in college at the time. He was home. You know, it was a week where he normally wouldn't be home, but I guess the semester was delayed because of COVID. And he came over to me and he said, Hey, dad, are you going to write something about GameStop? And like GameStop is like a place I've driven him a thousand times, you know, in his life. I mean, and so I took a look at GameStop was a company I'd edited a lot of columns about GameStop over the years, but fewer and fewer because GameStop was this tiny uh, retailer expected to go out of business. I think when when Heard on the Street wrote about GameStop, it was just to get a view into the the larger world of of video games to get some you know our finger on the pulse. Rather than GameStop as a business, it was a tiny. I think it had in the the spring of 2020, it was worth barely 200 million dollars. But he pointed it out to me, and he pointed out took a look and it it had doubled in the last couple of days and I asked him why he asked me about it he said because a friend of his had bought the stock and it doubled and you know so I saw that they were talking about it on Wall Street bets I'd been aware of Wall Street bets for a while at that point but you know it was just a joke in the the Wall Street Journal newsroom you know we'd see something go up and like you knew that it was just like this flash in the pan and you know and then after a few days or a few weeks the air would come out of it and that was that but something he said to me made me sit up, which was that I said, your friend should probably sell. Like it's, you know, you don't know how much more this is going to go up. He said, no, 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 he won't sell. He can't sell. He's got to have diamond hands. And so I started reading the board. And at that point, you know, I, I had a three quarters written book proposal I wasn't too excited about that I was going to send to a publisher. And I forgot about that immediately. I said, this is amazing. This is this is the you know a stock market corner being organized out in the open where you have you know several hundred thousand people you know completely legally basically it's illegal to to corner someone in the stock market these days since securities laws have existed but this was something totally new and I wrote a note to the acquisitions editor at Penguin Random House and you know they were intrigued but they you know the, the first articles hadn't begun to appear about it I said no oh, I haven't heard about that you know. Do you have a proposal? And it's like, no, this is happening now. It's going to be a really big story. So my initial excitement, I, I kind of missed the, it took me a couple of days to see the the broader significance of the story, I, I have to say. So by the time I, I sent them a proposal, which was about 48 hours later after pulling to almost all-nighters, you know, yeah, then then I saw the story for what it was, which is a, a bigger deal than just a crazy event in the stock market. What What was the real lead up? To it, I mean, is it as simple as you know? There was all the stimulus. People were at home. People were bored. It, it seems to me that that's a little bit too simple of a of an explanation. That there was probably something maybe building beneath the surface, and all it needed was a catalyst to all come out. Yeah, you had several things. It was really a perfect storm. So one thing is think about the the generation. As there are people who are older, there there are women, but it was the cohort that played the biggest role in this was males between the ages of 18 and 35 who had been too young for the most part to actually have any negative consequences from the financial crisis of, you know, 07 to 09, but it it 
was the formative financial experience of their lives. So they knew that Wall Street was bad, that hedge fund managers were the worst people on Wall Street, and they might not have known what short selling was. They still might not totally understand what short selling is, but to them, someone who was selling a stock short, there's always been a bias against short sellers in the, in the stock market. They're seen as kind of as rapacious vultures who are betting against what most of us want to happen, which is stock prices going up. So someone who was a short seller on Wall Street at a hedge fund, and then who was betting against GameStop, which is this thing that like for my sons and, and people older than them was like a central part of their childhood. You know what, how how could you be more evil than that? So it was like a perfect kind of cartoon villain in their mind. So that was one thing. That was the the setup. And this was a generation where it wasn't very cool to to be in finance. But you had more than ten million retail accounts opened, primarily by young people in the in the twelve months leading up to this. And you had a few different things. First of all, you had you know Robinhood itself. Robinhood during the the five-year period leading up to this opened one of every two brokerage accounts in the United States, although it still was a very small broker because the size of those brokerage accounts was tiny. It was like the kind of accounts that Fidelity didn't really want to deal with. And the reason it, it could do that was the sort of, you know, this great, alluring, gamified app that it had that drew people in, where they were going back and checking their Robinhood accounts on average seven times a day, which is crazy. But then in late 2019, every other broker threw in the towel and went to zero. And they, they thought that it would hurt their business. And what they didn't understand was that when you take something, if you take something that's, that's utilitarian and you cut its price, then people might consume a bit more of it. But if you take something that's fun and you cut its price to zero, even if it costs very little, if you cut its price to zero, then people are going to go crazy and consume a lot of it. And stock trading turned into a really fun game, especially for young people. You know, if you're if you're my age and you have COVID lockdowns and you know you didn't know how bad it was going to be, you have COVID lockdowns and you see your your retirement savings. You know, you're, you're maybe 15, 10, 15 years away from retiring, and those carefully built up savings, you know, fall by a third. You're pretty upset. That's really what you're thinking about. You're not, not saying this is great. This is exciting. But if you're young and you really have no savings and you've just opened a, a brokerage account because your friend, you know, got a free share of stock for, you know, getting you to open your Robinhood account and you got a, a free like a, you know, kind of sweepstakes kind of thing, like a mystery share of stock, you're pretty excited and you don't care if stocks are going up or down. You just see they're bouncing around. And in the year leading up to the the meme stock squeeze, almost I mean, it, it was like a an amazing money-making opportunity and, and a lot of fun for these people because stocks were bouncing around like crazy. And the lesson that they learned, it was a, the wrong lesson, but the lesson they learned is that, like you don't want to listen to not just like your, your dad's stockbroker, but you don't want to listen to, to Warren Buffett or someone like that because, look, that, that fool sold all of his airline stocks when they just before they bounced back and jumped you know, 70%. So the kind of the old sober voices were were no fun to listen to, and that's not where people went to get their their financial advice. They went to uh, they crowdsourced it from places like Reddit and TikTok and what have you, and these influencers and those influencers, whatever the the sorts of stocks, even like bankrupt companies like Hertz, you know, just dumb stuff to buy was doing well. When people like me at the Wall Street Journal were like, no, stop, don't do that. That It's a bankrupt company. It has no value. Hertz wound up actually having some value in the end. So 
turned out okay, I guess, if you held on. But that was the that was the way to make money. And so the the kind of the the dumber the thing was that you bought, the better you did. And in that one year period, ninety six percent of American stocks from that bear market bottom rose. So there, there's never been a period where where you know it was like shooting fish in a barrel. It was very difficult to lose money. And and it it almost created, I think, a almost like a a, a feeling or a, a cultural generational warfare almost, right? You started having language like "okay, boomer," right? Whenever somebody right. would right. try and counter some of that, which I think is fascinating because what the point about there's the memory of '08 and that that's sort of the generation that's the response to that. I think is intriguing, right? That you can maybe attribute some of this to to that memory from the great financial crisis. But I guess it's 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 amazing to me the the way that the narrative seems to be most focused on the gamification that caused this, right? So you alluded to it. Robin Hood obviously was was a big aspect of this. But do you get the sense that even if Robin Hood were not around, even if gamification were not as prevalent, that you'd have a similar type of dynamic? Or was that a necessary ingredient to cause these this kind of insanity that we saw? Yeah, I, I think it was a necessary part. I think you wouldn't have had that this the same surge in speculation. So I think if you, you know, you look at, at Wall Street bets and and Robin Hood, there is a symbiosis there, for sure, in, in terms of of having this really, really frictionless app that was totally intuitive to particularly to a generation that had grown up with smartphones. And then having on the same device, being able to scroll between a place where you're you're getting crazy financial advice and and having this app where it's it doesn't cost anything it does cost something of course you know as we know but it you know in your mind it doesn't cost anything you know you're just trading in and out you can buy a fraction of a share you can do it with very little money so there's not there's not that like hey let's stop and think for a second there's not that little speed bump you know at all it is completely frictionless and the device where you you hang out all day, and especially you were hanging out on even more during the pandemic when you were, you know, at home a lot and bored. And this thing where that you can, you know, manage your your finances, your little pool of capital, you know, it was it was a perfect setup. So, but the the thing that I I really only started to understand as I was writing the book, and and I kind of better understand now that it's come out, is that there's this real nihilism too to this this whole thing, where so you can't. You know, th- this group is not a monolith. Okay, so uh, it, you know, if you have been involved ever in your life with like a, a political movement or a campaign or a religious organization or something like that, you know that like the the people who get to it late are the most earnest, right? So you had people jumping on the bandwagon. You know, you had the the membership of Wall Street Bets go from like 1.1 million at the you know mid January 2021 to like 11 million by the end of the next month. So a lot of those people who jumped on the bandwagon opened accounts and were very very kind of vocal about this and wanted to stick it to the man were not the original people who were sort of looking for an edge or looking for a hack. I think the original ethos of Wall Street Bets was looking for a hack, looking for a way to kind of trick Wall Street and make a quick buck and or do something dumb and show everyone the the kind of jackass style, like the dumb thing that you did. So there's a lot of kind of quote-unquote loss porn on it too. But there's this real nihilistic sort of sense that, like, I don't care if I lose money. I want to – what matters to me is that Gabe Plotkin lost money. 
I want him to lose money. I don't care. It's almost, almost, like, almost like revenge trading, right? It's sort of like, you know, I want to trade just to get to somebody else, not because I want to gain from it. Right. And there's nothing that that's something that I've never, ever seen. So that's, that's something that is really something unique. I mean, this whole thing was crazy, but that, that is a unique aspect to it. You never, people had never weaponized their, their brokerage accounts before. And yeah. And it, I think it's a, it's a minority of, of the people who are involved in this for sure, but very active minority. And, you know, what we learned from this and what we've learned since is that a small group of people can really wet. It's not that hard. It doesn't take that much to weaponize. You, you, if you're trading a small stock like AMC or GameStop or something, and you're like, hey, you know, you can do a do a gamma squeeze. You can basically buy, you know, you know out of the money call options that expire pretty soon, and have a, basically, if you enough people do it all at once, it's a self fulfilling prophecy. You can actually make the stock go up for a while. You know, it's not like a, it's not like a money making scheme. Like you're you're still burning up a lot of premium and you're still enriching brokers and stuff like that. And you're unlikely to make money doing it. But if, if all you're interested in is making a stock go up a lot in a short amount of time, then they're way, you know, they discovered ways to do it, especially with these thinly traded stocks. It's not going to work with Apple, but it, it works really well with AMC or GameStop. There, there was also a, a sort of, I think, um, conspiratorial mindset around a lot of this stuff that uh, I remember seeing, often in terms of why this or that stock would move and why it wasn't moving because you know some other entity or individual was making sure it wasn't moving have you ever seen anything from that perspective as as pervasive as what we saw i mean there's always a degree of conspiracy theorists out there and admittedly some of the conspiracy theories may end up ultimately being true or are true but right. that sort of collective mindset around this conspiracy aspect to mean stocks i think was also really fascinating yeah, I mean, I, I hate to be dismissive of people. I'm, you know, I'm a financial journalist. I want people to, to be well informed, not to to believe in conspiracies. But yeah, it's it's like it's cuckoo crazy stuff out there. There are all kinds of and pe- that's the thing is like a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. You know, there's there's information out there. You know, having information is not the same thing as as having wisdom, right? There there's a lot of information out there that someone will will look at and then put on Reddit and then misinterpret it and say so you see. This means that that hedge funds are manipulating this thing, and they're still in, and there are millions of phantom shares. And you know, you probably most people. Uh, and if you haven't, then go Google it now or after the call. You know, MOASS, the mother mother of all short squeezes, which is a conspiracy theory that continues to persist and has taken on many permutations. Where there's this theory that there's going to be an even bigger short squeeze because there are a whole bunch of synthetic shares that that exist in these companies and the hedge funds are you know the hedge funds don't care hedge funds are sort of this is this is like i mean i'm sure that there there are funds obviously that get in and out of these stocks today and sell them short and stuff like that of course but big hedge funds are sort of they, they've got much bigger fish to fry than worrying about amc and gamestop and there there are not millions of phantom shares so and but like you said a conspiracy does sometimes have a kernel of truth, like a lot of conspiracy theories do. That's a that's something that you, people should appreciate. That conspiracies, and sometimes conspiracies are true, right? So you know, there's like a failure to li- deliver or something. You're like, aha, there there are all these failures to deliver. That means that whatever. No, it doesn't mean that, but it means that there's a that there there are people who game the system or or whatever, or there's sloppiness on prime lending desks. And that short selling isn't 
maybe as kind of tightly regulated as it could be. It's not a, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I don't think it's anything that also that really, that hurts mom and pop investors who are kind of patient and long-term. It's kind of a non-issue, but yeah. And then, and then this whole thing about the way payment for order flow, which is another boogeyman. I mean, it's just a way that, you know, that, that, you know, these, these dark, it's not dark pools, but basically, you know, there are, I think today there are about 13, 13 to 15 stock exchanges in the U S but then a lot of retail trading doesn't go through a stock exchange. It goes through, you know, a company like Citadel or Susquehanna or, you know, that, that basically processes the trade itself in its black box and then pays the brokerage firm that sent, like Robinhood especially, that would make a lot of their money that way. They, it pays the brokerage firm for sending it the order. And then they see some dark, nefarious conspiracy. Well, I, I understand pretty well how payment for order flow works. It's, it's not that bad. I mean, you can get rid of it and trades would happen a different way. It, it wouldn't really change anything. What it did, I mean, the problem that I see with payment for order flow is that it enables the system where you have brokers like Robinhood that are incentivized to have you trade as much as possible. And, you know, there are not a lot of truisms in finance, but one truism is that there's a direct inverse correlation between how active you are and uh, how, how well you do as an individual trader. I mean, the people who trade the least do the best, the people who trade the most do the worst. And that's not taking costs into account. That's just you know, activity is is anathema to returns. Let me uh, reset the room for the meeting. So here, everybody, please make sure you follow Spencer Jacob on Twitter and check out the Revolution that wasn't available on Amazon. Again, this will be in the podcast fairly soon. Let's go to some of the audience for a question. I think that that's a that's that's a great point. So, anger or more specifically, resentment is an important thing to understand today. I think people who feel that they're they're second class that they're being left out, that they're being kind of screwed over. I think that, first of all, just economically, you know, you this generation, you know, 90% of, of people or 95% of people are in this generation, you know, they didn't go to a fancy college. They went to college. Maybe they didn't go to a fancy college. They got stuck with student loans. They don't have a great job. They sort of, they felt like they were promised something and they didn't quite get it. And there is, there is resentment towards the haves by the, the, the and not, not the have-nots necessarily, but the have lesses, people who, yeah. And so I think that that's something that I think the, the thing that you identify is, you know, is a, a good starting point to, to explain a lot of things politically too, not just, not just this episode. I think that that's a, that's a potent force that, that some populist politicians are, are very good at, at tapping. Not people who are at the bottom, bottom rungs of society, because they, they were not participating in this. You know, people who just don't, don't have time to, sit around on, on Reddit all day and trade, but but people who felt like they deserve more, they deserve better. And and to be honest, I mean, you know, look, I mean, there's the income inequality has has widened in, in this country. It's, you know, you you have this real plutocracy in this country. You know, Ken Griffin is like a real figure who's who's hated by this group. Well, you know, Ken Griffin is kind of an easy guy to hate. The guy has has like 15 houses worth more than a billion dollars. You know, he he was asked to testify in this congressional committee where Roar and Kitty testified, and he had given personal political donations to most of the the Republican members of the committee who were questioning him. I mean, you know, you you can, you know, there, there really are two sets of rules. That it is, I think it's it's hard to deny that that's true. There there's those for the rich and well connected, and and then those for everybody else. And so yeah, and so that's that. I think fueled some of the the resentment 
that led people to think, hey, weaponizing a brokerage account is pretty good. But as my, my book does conclude, and I want to give away the, the punchline, oh, I, I did give away the punchline of the title, is that it wasn't a revolution because not only did they really fail, they heard a couple of people on Wall Street, but a lot of people on Wall Street made a lot of money during this episode. It was a really profitable time for Wall Street. So if you're bad at Wall Street, period, then boy, you 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 know you, you enriched a lot of people on Wall Street, including you know Ken Griffin, just by the the sheer volume of trading that occurred. And you know a couple of hedge funds does not Wall Street make. You know he- Wall Street is mainly a place where transactions take place, and they're, they're happy. They're just happy you showed up. If you showed up because you're angry, that's fine. They don't care why you showed up. They just like you know it, it could be like the dot com phenomenon where everyone thought they're they're a genius and going to get rich. They just love it when when the masses show up and with their money and and leave some of it with them. Well, and, and by the way, also, I, I've always had this belief that I mean, as it was unfolding with Wall Street bets, that you know, and you alluded to it, right? The number of of new people on that on Reddit that I have to assume that that there were probably some hedge funds or institutional players that were now trying to game the sentiment themselves. Just like you know, what you see as a problem on Twitter, a whole bunch of bots regurgitating a narrative yeah. to try to manipulate, you know, a, a certain belief, right? So it can't have been the case that the 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 sort of evildoers in quotes weren't then trying to push back, making it look like they were actually retail, but in reality were just trying to manipulate retail during that phase. It's possible that some of the you know you go back and look at the boards, you know, you don't know. I mean, people are pseudo- use pseudonyms on on Reddit. There definitely were a lot of bots. I mean, I, I write about that in the book. There are a tremendous number of, of, of bots, and bot activity surged around this time, although it's always been a scourge on, on social media when it comes to investments. You know, it's like the Yahoo Finance message boards times 10,000, right, in terms of the, the impact that's just much more sophisticated and insidious, uh, whether they're human bots or bot bots, like, you know, a, a, actually kind of, you know, algorithms. And then, um, yeah, if you look at some of the original posts that said, oh, no, this is how you do it. This is how you create a, a gamma squeeze. Yeah, I, those people knew a thing or two. They're, they weren't just some guy living in mom's basement. You know, they they knew exactly how to get the most bang for the buck. So, yeah, I, I do suspect that there were people who, who got the snowball rolling at the very least. Maybe they, they didn't realize how big it would be, but they saw the opportunity for a short squeeze and possibly even a corner in these very heavily shorted stocks. In September, October, November, and and we're out there on the boards trying to to egg people on. Yeah, I, I'm. I, that's that's something that I unfortunately have not. You know, is beyond my ability to get to the bottom of. And the the SEC maybe could have, but they didn't. But yeah, I, I think I think that's that's probably pretty likely. Listen, there's the the amount of 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 hate mail that that I've received is off the charts. You know, just God, my, my email address is out there. Spencer Jacob at wsj.com. You know, it, it comes to me or, or through social media or whatever. So, yeah, people really do it, it resent it a lot as putting it mildly. But yeah, I, I think that education. I mean, I, clearly there, there's a, a, a lot for these people to learn. But I, I'm gonna well, go and there's, there's a lot for everybody to learn. In fairness, I mean, it's, 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 right. I, I've been right. I've right. been this thirty years, and there's a lot for me to learn. So there's always things to to learn, right? I. I don't think that that's the solution. I think that when you hear, when you have like a financial executive after an episode like this kind of brought before Congress and they say, well, what we really need is education, that is a cop-out. I'm sorry, because the level of, of, of education that, that even if you, even if you, 
you know, I, 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 I was only in finance for 10 years. I've been a financial journalist for 20 years. I don't go and trade individual stocks. But if I went out and tried to do it, I don't think that I'd be particularly successful. I don't think that I would blow myself up. But I don't think that that it's a would be a like if I quit to become a day trader or something like that. I don't think that that I would do particularly well, and I don't think most people would. I think there's a there's a very small percentage of people who would do well by being very active. So I think the this saying that we need more financial education, the thing that we that that people many people have learned, and Wall Street hates this. The thing that many people have learned especially in the last 10 or 15 years, is that it kind of it pays to be cheap and lazy, that basically having a kind of a low turnover, low cost, passive strategy is, is the best strategy. You will, you will beat 85% of your, your friends and neighbors' portfolio performance by just putting your money in, in some kind of automated way into a balanced portfolio that costs very little and letting it sit. That's, that's absolutely true. I mean, Obviously, that you know, there's the 15% who will do better than you, but and people overestimate their ability in all kinds of things. And and hey, you have to be smart to do trading. And most people think they're smart. Most people, if you if you poll a thousand people, 800 of them will think they're smarter than than, than average. And so, pe- trading and making money in the stock market is the ultimate kind of test of of IQ, as far as I'm concerned. That's what that's why it's so fun to write about because you have all these these professionals constantly battling you know 24 7 in markets to to do well and 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 it's a zero-sum game right so it's it's kind of a, a real you know real kind of achievement to do well consistently as an investor but i don't think that people should try i think most people really should not be trying i think that's that's the education that they need is that you you don't go out there and try to sort of jump ahead of a meme stock you know and people will come up with all kinds of excuses as, when they're not successful as to why they weren't successful. And the way that that these apps are set up, by the way, encourage that that sense. They give you FOMO. It's like when you turn on, you open up Robinhood. Why is it useful to see the ten most traded stocks that day, or the ten best performing stocks that day? Because it gives you the sense that, like, oh, I, I really I missed that. Or, or why does it? Why is it important to have a, a chart of a stock? Showing you that if you had just gotten out a little sooner, or just gotten in a little sooner, you would have made a lot of money. That's not useful information. That that's information that gives you like the near miss effect. Just like you know when you go to a casino and like two cherries come up instead of three, doesn't matter. You don't win with two cherries, but the fact that two cherries came up give you the sense and and you know gambling establishments understand this very very well that you you got really really close to winning, so you should keep trying. And and that's that's uh damaging to your your net worth you know when you're an investor yeah no thanks for that i i do write about them i i i note that i noted the the neo episode and there was one other episode in the fall of of 2020 where he he came out with a short report of stock a stock that was heavily held by wall street bets users and so he was already a reviled figure and then his you know, he told people that they're the suckers at the poker table just days before the really big explosion in gamestop so yeah, he, he it was like he really egged them on. It was he he miscalculated because the thing about a poker table is like you know you have you have someone with like a ton of chips at the poker table, they don't have to be playing smart. They have a ton of chips, and he just got he got buried, you know. And I I it, I almost I mean I'm not going to go out there. I, I didn't get into this in the book, but I mean, it almost seems like he maybe he understood human nature enough that maybe he was. How how do you know he was short? Right? I mean, you don't know how much how much money he. 
he, he lost on the on the short. I mean, like it was like a if anything. I mean, you know what I, I did speak with him for the book, and and I I outline all this the the ways that he specifically kind of like just lit a fuse for this. You know, if he was smart enough, you know, maybe maybe he was somehow you know maybe he somehow profited from it too. He didn't seem that upset. I did speak with him on on some occasions after the uh, sh- shortly after the episode. Thanks. I mean, I, in terms of, of regulations, I mean, what I, I, you know, it's hard to go to someone who who designed a really good, smooth app and say, "Hey, you made it too much fun to trade," or "You made it too easy to trade." I think the only thing that you could do from a regulatory point of view to to cool sort of this like kind of harmful retail speculation, and I don't think it's going to happen, would be to you have, you have to throw some sand in the gears. Perhaps by having something like I, I, it, would, there are negatives to this too. And the people who want to do this are not really looking out for mom and pop. I think they're just kind of they just don't like Wall Street. But to have like something like a financial transactions tax, where it, making it at least cost something to transact, because even if it costs fifty cents or a dollar, you know you would you would think about it in terms of. of by the, by the way, I would add, I would add that's one way to also get rid of you know all the high frequency trading benefits, which I actually would argue that's kind of a good thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it it would solve some problems. The the people who are really pushing, I don't think it's, I don't think they'll ever succeed because the lobbying might of of Wall Street is too too strong. But I think the people who are really like the Bernie Sanders of the world, they're pushing it for it just to stick it to Wall Street. They're not they're not out there looking for you know you know making Wall Street less of a casino. They they just want to cost Wall Street money. They don't like they don't like. The, that milieu, they don't like that crowd. They don't get, you know, they don't get campaign donations of that crowd. Uh, in terms of making short selling more difficult, short selling is already a very, very difficult game. You're, you're going against, you know, you're a short seller. Your your losses are are theoretically unlimited, and your gains are are capped at 100. percent Yeah, I mean, I think if you, you know, there there are very few pure short selling funds that actually have made money. So the the appeal, you know, even if you're really really good, even like a Jim Chanos. He's he's made like very little money. His and his fund has shrunk to almost you know to much much less than it used to be, you know. And he's the he's the best of the best, or considered to be the best of the best. So I think that that short selling is is I mean you know of course Gabe Plotkin is not a short seller. He sold stock short. Most short selling is is done by people who are long, and most investors in in pure bear funds or pure short selling funds do so as part of a, a longer an overall long strategy. They they do it, you know, for reasons of, of of hedging and basically smoothing out their returns. So yeah, I mean, I think short selling pure short selling is it's like a dying art because it's it's just too difficult to do. And especially in this era now, it's become very difficult to do. Actually, now that interest rates are rising, I mean just it's a technical thing, but now that interest rates are rising, it actually is is a little bit easier to do short selling, not because of the effect that it's having on stocks, but because because of the kind of the neg- negative carrying is not as bad, but yeah, short selling is a very tough game. I, I, I think that one one possible rule. I don't think it's a particularly helpful rule. Would, would be, I mean, requiring the sort of disclosure. So having a lower threshold for disclosure of of a short position than you do for a long position. So you know, for example, you you don't you know you you, you don't have to to file a, an immediate report you know if you have a, a small long position in a stock but that that threshold would be I mean, it's very it's, it's it's typically 
you know, when when you have like a crazy episode of markets, especially when you have a big drop in markets, like in 08 and stuff like that, restrictions are put in on put in on short selling and and stuff like that. So I, I do see the that that's that's one one set of rules that I, I do see possibly happening, which is you know further reporting requirements for short selling, which of course makes it more dangerous because you know now you have a lot of this kind of activism where people are, are targeting short positions and trying to shake people out of their short positions by squeezing them. So it is just making it tougher to do. But you know, at, at just if you're just an ordinary investor buying individual stocks. You know what? What I think people don't understand is that the existence of short sellers is, is beneficial to you because short sellers provide a lot of liquidity in the markets, and you need somebody. So you can't just have two ways to bet on a stock. You can't just have like I like it or I'm going to abstain. I don't have any view on it. You also have to have the ability for people to say no. This is overvalued. This is a bubble, or this is there's some fishy business going on, and I'm going to actively bet against it. Without that, stock prices are less correct. And bubbles persist for a longer period of time, and then more sort of, especially the most naive and vulnerable of, of investors get get pulled in. I mean, if you know, if Enron had gone on for another year, it would have sucked in a lot more, lot more money. People excited about this this cool company that's uh, revolutionizing energy trading and trading, you know, electricity and bandwidth and whatever, and it was all a fraud. So that's an extreme example, but it is useful to to have short selling out there. I think one other possible. Rule change it might might involve instead of like reforming payment payment for order flow and having you know orders go to an auction system, which is that doesn't seem very workable. But yeah, some some rules might come out of it. But you know, generals are always fighting the last war too in Washington, and so I think the rules that come out of this are not going to be not going to be helpful for the next crazy thing that happens. Unfortunately, good place to end the space. Thank everybody for joining. Spencer, really appreciate you spending the hour with us, and everybody enjoy the rest of your day if I don't see you. Thank you, Spencer. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.